So turn with me to First Thessalonians. Chapter 1 is where we are. It should be page 986 on the, the Bibles in the rows. And I'm going to read, I think uh, we've got up there, yep, the entire first chapter this morning. Uh, but the, the text will be 6 through 10 that I'm preaching from. But uh, let's read the whole chapter uh, just to get that context again. Paul, Savannah, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever, and may the Lord bless the, the preaching and the hearing of his word today. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would pour your spirit upon us, that you would guide and direct, that you would fill me with your spirit, with an unction and a power from you to preach with clarity and conviction. And Lord, open our eyes and our hearts May we see the beauty of this Thessalonian church, and may it stir us and draw us closer to you. For your glory and for our good and joy, we pray in Christ's name, amen. That's Oscar Wilde, who is credited with the saying, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. I think we don't always read the rest of the quote where it goes on and says that mediocrity can pay to greatness. When you put the whole thing together, it doesn't always sound that great. When you hear mediocrity, it kind of uh, lessens things a little bit. But imitation is flattery. When you use the positive definition of flattery as showing respect or admiration. And it is good when it is done in regard to a good example. We all know it that kids imitate constantly, right? You see it in sports uh, where they try to act just like their favorite player. It happens too often on a basketball court well before they have the skill or ability to look anything like their favorite player. See it all over the place. It's found in music and in academics. We imitate what we want to become like. Now, sometimes imitation can be a bit annoying when you have a copycat around you. Um, but that's, that's not what we're talking about today. It's not the annoying type of imitation. And, but, because when you imitate, you pick up mannerisms, you pick up behaviors, even looks and posture of those you want to be like, those you admire. I like what George Bernard Shaw said. 
Imitation is not just the sincerest form of flattery. It is the sincerest form of learning. Sincerest form of learning. See, Scripture calls us to be imitators. We hear it a great bit from Paul, 1 Corinthians 4.16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Then a little bit later in that book, in verse, chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Or Philippians 3.17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. A little later in that book, he says in chapter 4, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. In all of this, Paul does put himself forward as a model but not the the perfect embodiment of the ideal. He knows that. He had even confessed his own need for growth earlier in chapter 3 in verse 12 where he says, not that I've already obtained the prize, but I, I press on towards that goal. I still have work to do. And that imitation that he's talking about is toward the goal of a life in fellowship with Christ who suffered persecution. It's, it's learning to participate in his life. Imitation is learning to have your life conformed to the image of Christ through obedience and through faith. The imitation of Paul is really living a life in conformity to the teachings of Christ. That's what imitation is to him. Grasping this idea of what good imitation is is important. Now, where our focus is, we will gravitate towards looking like that and being conformed to it. So so what we look like, that's most likely what we're imitating. So if you see things that you don't want, it's probably because that's what you're feeding yourself with. Now, as we come to our text now, Paul is writing to the Thessalonian church. He's given thanks for them. He's already given thanks for their way of life and the evidences of graces that he's seen and and, uh, that, that show without a doubt that they are children called by God. That has understandably been great encouragement to this church. But now he continues with some further evidences and further reasons for thanksgivings. What he moves to now is that they are an imitable church. Okay, what that means is that they are worthy of being imitated. Okay, they are church worthy to be imitated because they have imitated Paul and they have imitated Christ. This is what we're going to look at this morning. Their way of living has become a beautiful example in the region. They've become that both in affliction and in faith. So we'll see them as an example in affliction and an example in faith. And this is both encouraging and, I think, challenging to us as the church today. We need to learn what it is to imitate the Lord and have the the result uh, uh, of imitating Him be an example to those around us. So let's look at verses 6 and 7. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Now let's jump down to the start of verse 7. He says, so that. 
putting the so that there, this is giving us a reason in a sense. It's the result of their imitation. Because of their imitation, this is what's happened. They have become an example. They became a type, a pattern. It's like a mold that is meant to be reproduced. If you're on an assembly line, you have a mold that everything looks like. Okay, in a sense, that's what this is, is that they are what others should strive to be like. And that's what we should all be to an extent. We should be a model, an example for younger Christians and even those who are not yet Christian. We ought not to be afraid. We ought not to be leery of saying to someone, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But I would bet that many of us, most of us, maybe all of us, would be a little bit hesitant in saying that. And notice something. Paul doesn't just call out a few of the believers. He doesn't say, you know, hey, it, Joe and, and Mary, are, they've been great. Okay? He doesn't call out just a few. He, uh, he says this applies to the entirety of the church. The church itself became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. That's rather impressive to me. That the whole of the church is this example. So what is it that led them to be such an example? Well, Paul wrote that they became imitators of us and of the Lord. That's, that's what led to this. They, they imitated Paul and his companions in Christ. They followed. They sought to become like them. They emulated the way Paul lived, the way of Christ. They sought to follow Christ, to be disciples, and to imitate him. Now, how specifically did they do this? In, in what context is Paul highlighting their imitation? What, what, what made it stick out to him? And he says, For you receive the word in much affliction. This was a church that was afflicted, that suffered. Look at 2.14 in, in 1 Thessalonians. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And then in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Paul recounts how, they were, how Paul and his companions were compelled to send Timothy back to help them that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Now, I want to point something out here. Notice that when Paul shared the gospel with them, he didn't try and sell it to them. He didn't try and sugarcoat the whole ordeal. He didn't, he, he didn't lessen the reality of opposition in their lives. He made it clear to them, just so you know, you're going to suffer. You will come face to face with affliction. They knew the reality of what they were believing. And here's the crazy idea in all of this too. Suffering is actually a gift. Suffering is a gift. Philippians 1, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And then in, in Philippians 3, I think it's verses 10 and 11, Paul writes this, that I may know him and the power of the resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection 
from the dead. Paul is actually longing to share in the sufferings of Christ so that he could become like his Lord. Folks, we're destined to suffer. All who are in Christ Jesus will suffer. So this wasn't some easy conversion for those who made up the Thessalonian church. They weren't celebrated by their community at large. Their neighbors weren't throwing parties saying, oh, look, they became Christians. They were persecuted. They were afflicted. But they nonetheless received the word in the midst of that. That's a bit convicting. Folks, we have trouble concentrating if something is just a little off in life. Or in the environment we find ourselves, like maybe the temperature isn't very good. Or the coffee's no good. Or our t-shirt's bugging us in the back and I just can't pay attention. And yet they received the word in affliction. Actually, in much affliction. They heard the words of eternal life in the gospel. And they knew like the disciples whom Jesus turned to and after he uttered some hard sayings and, and said, do you want to go also? And they said, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. They were convinced that the gospel brought the words of eternal life, and so it didn't matter that they faced affliction and much affliction. They heard and they received the word of God. But what else distinguished them? Not only did they hear it, but they did this with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They faithfully received the message in line with the way Christ and the apostles had lived Jesus displayed joy, joy in the midst of his trials, Hebrews 12 too, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told the disciples this, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you falsely. And utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For so, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be glad when you suffer for the name of Christ. St. Paul had prayed for the Colossian church. Love this prayer, Colossians 1, 9 through 11. And so from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, probably imitating him, you could put there, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And Paul didn't just pray this for others, he displayed it. Remember what happened just before he got to Thessalonica? He was in Philippi. He and Silas were thrown in jail. And what did they do? They moped, didn't they? They moped, cried out to their mama, and said, please get us out of here. No, they sang hymns. And what happened? There was an earthquake, and their shackles came off. 
They responded with joy for being persecuted for the name of Christ. How did they do that? How do believers have joy in affliction? Well, one, God's Spirit's at work in them. That's a prereq here. God's Spirit needs to be at work. Because in your own strength, you will not respond like that. You will not respond like that. I remember when I was overseas, we were delivering Bibles in a um, college campus. And all of a sudden, some of the students that were delivering them are getting arrested. There's guys with AK-47s walking students that I'm responsible for away from where they are handing out Bibles. And eventually they capture, you know, they arrest me too because I don't look like a Turkish person. And we're all hanging out, and I don't remember which student said it first, but they said, hey, maybe let's, let's ask him for a guitar and let's just start singing. Now, we're not being whipped, we're not thrown in chains, we're there, they're giving us water, things like that. But it is a little bit nerve-wracking that guys with machine guns are standing around you. And we just started singing. And our friends were praying. And we got out of there just before, kind of was the last minute that we could actually still get home. That was a, a small example of this. But that was the work of the Spirit of God amongst us. But even with that, why would we take pleasure in suffering? Why would we rejoice in it? I mentioned it earlier, we will suffer. Okay, all who are in Christ Jesus will suffer. And we are to rejoice in that always. The, the end of this letter says it in 5, 16 and 7. Rejoice always. That doesn't mean rejoice always when everything is good. Rejoice always. And we can endure the suffering with joy because we have a great hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the return of our King. Listen to 1 Peter 4.13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Rejoice now. You're sharing in his sufferings. And as you rejoice now, know that you will rejoice even greater when he returns. It's just a precursor of the rejoicing, and it's, it's, a, it's an hors d'oeuvre. It's a taste of what is to come. We can have joy because we know that the suffering is in the will of God, and ultimately it's for our good and his glory and will result in greater joy. God will grow us and conform us more to his image as we walk in his ways. But there's still another aspect of this joy and suffering and, and the way they receive the word in much affliction, and that is the result that comes from this. That is what Paul turns to next in our letter. So look at verses 8 through the end. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. In my studies, I've appreciated one commentator very much, Greg Beale, and he, he wrote something that I found quite insightful. He said this, he said, it, it is significant that the lifestyle model of the Thessalonians is mentioned first 
as influencing others before their actual activity of proclaiming the gospel. God has ordained that the proclaimed gospel be effective when it is backed up by the godly examples of the proclaimers. Thus God may bring suffering on many in the church in order that it have a corporate witness and hence an effective witness. When a group of Christians faces trials with joyous faith, unbelievers take notice because it is an amazing exception to the way the unbelieving world faces suffering. Such faithful living shows the supernatural power of God. What a privilege we have in how we live. It is actually vital. Now, now, now listen to this. I've heard the phrase, but know this. We cannot live the gospel. We cannot be the gospel to our neighbors. The gospel is a message of Christ's finished work that we must proclaim. But our lives can and, and must be becoming or, or reflective of the truth of the gospel in our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that they're perfect. What it means is that we're quick to repent and confess and ask for forgiveness and we seek to grow in the Lord. The, the, the lifestyle, the way the, the Thessalonian believers lived ended up being the subject of holy gossip all throughout the region and prepared the way for the gospel. One commentator said about the spread of the gospel and, and Acts said, you know, the, the disciples didn't have any, any real strategic plan in, in a sense. What it was is it was an irrepressible gossiping of the gospel. And some of that, I'm positive, was how people lived and responded to the suffering they endured. Now, in today's political world, and it's really been that way for a long time, there's a mantra that picks up on something P.T. Barnum once said. There's no such thing as bad publicity. Others follow Oscar Wilde's take on this. There's only one thing in the world worse than being talked about, and that's not being talked about. Too often, though, today, the only time I hear the church at large being talked about is when something's messed up. What headlines do you see on the news? It's of that faithful pastor in Enid, Oklahoma, right? No. It's of some pastor in a megachurch in Dayton who's abusing his congregation. Publicity like that, quite simply, is bad publicity. I long for the church to be talked about. I do. But I long for it to be talked about for being resilient joyous, faithful, loving, and kind. That's what was being shared about these Thessalonian believers, and that's what I wish was shared more. And you know what? The news media is not going to do it. So we have to live lives that influence our neighbors, and they start gossiping about us, and it's amazing gossip because of how we live. See, the word of the Lord echoed about, it rang out from the Thessalonians. It, it, it went everywhere, all over Greece and present-day Macedonia. Pretty much everywhere Paul found himself, he found people talking about the faith of the Thessalonian believers and also having heard the gospel from them as well. And so a further result of all this was that Paul's activity in Thessalonica and, and the lives of the believers was so well known that he had little need to say anything. 
Now, he certainly still shared the gospel, but the burden of Paul was eased because of the lives of the Thessalonian believers. Their faithfulness tilled the soil for Paul to further plant seeds of the gospel. The soil wasn't as hard as it used to be because how the Thessalonians had received the word of God in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. People surely wanted to know the reason that these believers could have such joy in the midst of all they were enduring. They wanted to know what was it that enabled these believers to respond in the manner in which they did, and that makes me wonder, what are people wanting to know about Christians today? Are they seriously wondering about the nature of our hope and joy and how we endure affliction with grace and truth? Or are they wondering something totally different? Rather than being strangely attracted to how we are acting in faithfulness and joy, are they instead being turned off? Now, let me make something clear here. Just because someone is turned off does not mean that we are being faithless. But I will say this, if no one is wondering how it is that we are handling ourselves with joy and grace, then maybe the reason is we aren't handling ourselves with joy and grace. And we're operating with the world's standards rather than those of the Lamb of God. Now then, what was it that the people heard in regard to these Thessalonians? They heard of the way they received Paul and his companions, specifically how they responded to what they heard. And what follows, Paul gives this beautiful description of one who comes to faith in Christ. This is a beautiful description. It says first, how you turn to God from idols. Turning. They turned. Turning is essential to the Christian life. This is repentance. You are going one way. You are in pursuit of what is wrong. You turn around and you endeavor after the right. You endeavor after what is good. You endeavor after the Lord. The Thessalonians had many idols to choose from. They had a smorgasbord. Greek, Roman, even Egyptian false gods were all over the place. But they turned from them. Too often today, the church is filled with people who haven't actually turned from their idols. We don't bow down down to Zeus or Ra, but there are plenty of idols in our lives, aren't there? You want some ideas here? How about money, sex, success, porn, drugs, comfort, image, identity, autonomy, peace? These are things that we use to make ourselves feel better, to define ourselves rather than to be defined as creatures of the sovereign creator. Humans are defined in their relation to the, with, to the Lord. We are made in the image of God, but we have two options in our definitions. We are either in Adam, that is in our sin and in our idolatry, or we are in Christ. That is that we are redeemed, beloved, and we are a child of God. Those are your two options for your identity. It's are you in Adam and following after idolatry? Are you in Christ and you've turned away from the idols to serve the living and true God? And so a good question to ask ourselves is have we turned? Have we turned from our idols toward God, like I said, to serve the living and true God, to serve the one who is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth? 
That's who we turn towards. We don't turn to some ogre in the sky. We turn to a God who loves us deeply, is full of grace, and sent his son to die for us, to redeem us from our idolatry. John Stott wrote, We must not think of conversion only in negative terms, as a turning away from the old life, but also positively as the beginning of a new life of service. We could say that it is the exchange of one slavery for another, so long as we add that the new slavery is the real freedom. In this way, authentic conversion involves a double liberation, both from the thraldom of the idols whose slaves we were and into the service of God whose children we become. Folks, we're freed from the shackles of sin. We're now slaves to righteousness as children of God. But there's a further description that he gives. So he says that, that they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, verse 10, and to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. An essential aspect of the Christian life is hope. It's waiting in hope, hope in the Lord, waiting with eager patience for his return, but I will say this, that hope and that waiting is certainly not passive. Scripture puts that waiting alongside living a life pleasing to God. Waiting on God never means passivity. It always actually involves a life pleasing to him and serving him and holding fast to him. We do that because we want to serve him. We long to serve him. We love him. But also, we know that he could return at any time. And we want to hear the words in that moment, well done, good and faithful servant. The core of the Christian truth is is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Without that resurrection, our faith is worthless and vain. But because of his resurrection, folks, we can be assured of our deliverance from the wrath of God due to unrepentant sinners in the last day. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Because of Christ's resurrection, those who are in Christ are publicly justified, acquitted at the last judgment. It is his work to do that. Believers are justified when they believe by the merit of Christ. And listen to this. There is no more wrath for one who is in Christ. God may well discipline you. You may be disciplined in suffering and in affliction, but it is not wrath because there is no wrath for you. He said it is finished. It's done. He has delivered us from the wrath of God. Rest in that truth. That leads us to wait more with eager patience for the one who would actually do that for us. So we see that the believers in Thessalonica were examples in their affliction and in their faith. They have shown us much this morning. So then, what do we take away from this? What do we take away from this? Here's a few thoughts, and these are just a start. Hopefully and prayerfully, the Holy Spirit will lead you and direct you in some other ways as well. But first, Are we as individuals and as a church worthy of imitation? That requires that we're imitating Christ. Not that we're perfect, but that we are going in a direction that is uh, of imitation. 
We must be united to him and have his spirit at work in us. Take some time and evaluate that. Think about this in in maybe a couple different spheres, parents or grandparents. Are your lives worthy of imitation by your kids and grandkids? Officers, elders, deacons in the church, are your lives worthy of imitation by those in the church? In whatever sphere you find yourself in at work, do you have a different life at work than you do at home? Or a different life at home than you do at church? Whatever sphere you find yourself, are you worthy of imitation? Again, it's not perfection. It's direction of life that seeks the Lord. You know, you can ask yourself, do you endure difficulties with joy and grace? Are you imitating Him? And I, I will say that we all need help in this. Not one of us is perfect by any stretch of the imagination. We need each other to do this well. I think that's why he called out the whole church. Because they, th- there are times when you're not going to respond well. But that friend can come alongside you and lift you up and point you in the right direction. We need that community. We need that love and friendship of others. And then second, are we a people who could be described as he describes Christians? Have we turned from our idols? Are we a consistent, repentant people? I I just, I love that description. Turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. We wait for the return of Christ to set all things right. Because honestly, they may not well not be right at the moment. I know a lot of stories in this room, and there's a lot of suffering and affliction. Let that push you in your longing for the return of Christ and to walk with Him and to see your life conformed more and more to His image. The waiting implies that we are looking to Him, eagerly anticipating that return. And that posture of of waiting and looking forward will guide us in how we live in the here and now. So do this. Pray with me that we would be a church full of people worthy of imitation, that this church would actually be gossiped about in Hamilton and Fairfield Township and Butler County in a way that brings glory to our God. Let us be a church filled with people who work and wait for our Lord who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, do do give us strength today. Conform us more to your image. May we know your grace and truth. Encourage us, Lord. We we know that as we hear this, that we're far from this. Don't let guilt guide, but let it push us to repentance and to faith that we would walk more and more in conformity 
with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.